Welcome to the Walk a Mile in My Shoes podcast. I'm your host, Chris Young, and I'll be chatting with all kinds of folk, highlighting the experience of people with mental health problems, many of whom feel on the edge of society, as I walk around the edge of the UK over the next couple of years. Following in the steps of a hero of mine, Satish Kumar, a Jain monk who went on a peace march in the 1960s, I'll be taking no money with me. His guru felt if he did, he'd like the motivation to speak with people at the end of the day, and that the only people he'd meet would be hoteliers. I thought if this amazing man could walk from India into Pakistan, expect and receive wonderful hospitality when the two countries were at war, then I should expect nothing less from the people on this beautiful island of ours. So far, I've walked the 4,000 or so miles anti-clockwise from Edinburgh to North Wales, and the people I've met, without exception, have been fabulous. Oh, I nearly forgot to mention, I have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, a severe and enduring mental health problem, which, although it curtails me, doesn't define me. But this isn't a story about me. This is all about those fabulous people I'll be meeting as I go. I'm inviting you to be part of this story. We're told we've become a more divided nation in recent years, and I'm here to prove that wrong. Join me. I'd love to hear and share your story. Help me on my journey as we challenge mental health stigma, one conversation at a time. You can call me on 07-535-035-909, that's 07-535-035-909, or email me at hello at letswalkamile.org, or follow me on Twitter at walkamileuk. In this episode, I speak with Katie. She got in touch on Twitter after I threw out the question, what happens when someone develops a mental health problem? I'm not entirely sure what I expected from such a vague question, but Twitter didn't let me down. Here's one of my favourites. Dr Chris Manning says, I'd start off by defining what you consider to be a mental health problem. I consider it to be something at the level of consternation at my bag going missing at Heathrow. I also think the term trivialises the severe anguish, distress and darkness associated with mental illness. Thanks for that, Chris. I think the language we use surrounding mental ill health, mental illness, mental health problems, mental maladies, and how we refer to people with these conditions is an interesting area worthy of discussion. I'll talk about this more in later podcasts, but it's my feeling if we police the language too closely, too strongly, then we'll close down the very conversations we desperately crave. In the messages I got from Katie, she explained that developing a mental health problem for her was so much more than becoming ill, getting treatment and returning to how you were. It's decidedly more complex than that. We cover some challenging topics in this podcast, so I've given it an explicit rating. Katie. Hi. Hi, welcome. So thank you. Could you tell us a a little bit about your story, your 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 background? Well, I have had mental health problems since I was a child and I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was about 25. Right. And then schizoaffective disorder last year. Um and before then 
as a young adult, I was so diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Okay. Which uh, bipolar people often get diagnosed with before they get diagnosed with bipolar. Yeah, so it's it's like a sort of diagnosing journey. Yeah. Okay. Um, the what often when I speak to people, um, the the question goes from what's wrong to wrong with you to what happened to you. Um, can yeah. you tell us a bit about your your history? Your, your you know the you know what did happen to you? Well, um, I grew up in a household with. Uh, alcoholic parents which I'm going to Al-Anon and stuff now and trying to process that now but my childhood was very difficult and um, that sort of created mental health symptoms and problems in me probably from all my life but it started to get worse when I was a teenager. And how were you uh, treated at school? Uh, well, by by the people around you, what with your your mental health symptoms? Well, my nickname in school was Psycho Katie. That's that's and, lovely, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so no, people weren't really supportive of me. I think people just knew that there was something wrong with me. Right. Um, and because my behaviour wasn't great. I did have kind of bad behaviour, and I was very erratic and stuff. He tells me. Well, I was just kind of in. You don't, as a teenager with bipolar. I mean, you don't really develop bipolar until you're in your early twenties, but you do kind of have pre-symptoms. So I'd go through times where I just wanted to party all the time, and I made a bunch of new friends in school and stuff, and then. At other times, I just would want to sit on my own and not speak to anybody, not go to school. Um, And then when I was in my sort of more up periods, when I was going out and partying and drinking, then, you know, my behavior would probably be weirder than a teenager would expect. So I got quite a bad reputation in school. Weirder. Can you say more about that? Um, I guess I'd probably, like, we'd be out or something at a gig or something like that, and I'd go from being really happy and, you know, talking fast and on top of the world, and then I'd just sort of have crashes, which is characteristic of bipolar. You just sort of crash down when you reach the end of your manic period. Yes. And I'd just, you know just end up kicking a wall or something like can't cope with this anymore can't cope with any of you anymore I need to go home <laughs> right right um so what what support was given to you at the time um I didn't get any support at all until I went to my GP when I was about 15 right. and they referred me to a youth therapist so I had a youth counsellor and then um I had a cognitive behavioural therapist, which is not always the best treatment for bipolar. Um, So that didn't really do anything. Um, But from, yeah, before then I had no no help whatsoever, really. I was a really shy and um, kind of an elective mute when I was a kid. I just didn't speak at all. I didn't speak to anybody. And 
that was just kind of seen as like, oh, she's shy, you know, and she'll grow out of it. Yeah. But yeah. so I was, you, you said some things about your teachers and how they um, spoke about you and spoke to you. Well, they would say, I mean, one time we did a survey in school. We had to do a survey for the government. Um, and one of the questions was, does anybody, you know, do you have a mental health problem? We had to take it on the box. And my teacher said, well, no one in this class will have a mental health problem. And they just didn't recognize it as a thing at all. When I was a really good student and then I just stopped performing as well in school sort of overnight. Right. And they just kind of thought it was because I was being bad rather than because there was a problem, you know. Right, right. And and did you have any conversations with teachers after that? Um, no, the, com- the conversations was always about my behaviour, about why I'm not showing up on time, why I'm not doing as well and it was always just that I need to try harder really right right that's that's so common on a report yeah yeah so you're not going to get anywhere in life if you carry on like this so gosh you need to step your game up so your your parents at the time what how were they looking at your mental health problems well they well They've been in quite denial about my home situation for quite a while, probably until recently. Right. Um, and they were kind of, I'd say to them I was having problems, but they just sort of were like, well, you know, you're a teenager. Te- being a teenager is hard. My dad would say to me, you know, you're not depressed, you're just a teenager. Right. And um, when I did go to the GP and uh, I, when I was about 17, they found out that I'd been self-harming for five years. Right. And they didn't know about it at all. So then I got sort of, the GP suggested that I go to a mental health unit. Okay. Um, what was that, a res- then, residential unit? Yeah, just to go somewhere. But because I was 17, they couldn't find anywhere to put me. Right. Because you can't go to CAMS when you're 17 at that time. And you couldn't really go to an adult ward. Or I think they could have sent me to an adult ward, but they're pretty horrific places. So they didn't want to send me to an adult ward. So then I'd been kind of labelled as a serious problem, but no one actually knew what to do or what to help me. And my mum just said to me, I don't know how to help you, so you're just going to have to do this on your own. So she didn't know how... What What would you... You know, looking back, what what? How would you have got her to perhaps help you? Well, she does help me now. Yeah, um, yeah. Everyone around me now is much more supportive, but it's taken a lot of. I mean, getting the correct diagnosis is really important, but that's not really possible if you have something like schizophrenia or bipolar. It's not really possible to get a correct diagnosis unless you're probably at least twenty-one. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, that's quite reasonable, isn't it? Yeah, it is because your brain doesn't finish developing. A lot of people don't develop schizophrenia until the early 20s. Um, so the the diagnosis has helped now that we know what's wrong and how to treat it. But yeah. I think with teenager care, it's still probably quite lacking because they don't know if you're going to grow up into an adult with schizophrenia or if you're going to grow up into an adult who's just going to be totally fine. Yeah. And they, 
none of the GPs kind of looked at fixing my home situation or getting me out of the situation I was in. I was in a really abusive and violent relationship from age 16 to 18 and just no one did anything about it. So I was having, uh, my behavior got worse and I was acting completely crazy and yeah. everyone around me was just sort of thinking, well, you know, that's her, her problem. But really, I was in a bad situation. It's funny that um, I think problems like this arise when you, you're purely looking at the medical model. You're not looking at the, the wider picture. And, and if you're not looking at the wider picture, you, you're never going to get the, the right answer, are you? No. I mean, there's people who are having bad situations in their adult life mm. who, are, you know, maybe are homeless or have been raped or been divorced or something and they're being diagnosed with depression and giving medication but no one's actually really helping them with their actual situation no. which I guess maybe is not a doctor's responsibility but I think they should probably acknowledge acknowledge that it's going on see that's I, I was a social worker for about 20 years and and that was the sort of thing that we would get involved in you know and looking at the social situation and <laughs> Yeah. You I mean, no- if you get to the stage where you have a social worker, I mean, I've had social workers before, but at that time, I just, no one, I guess everyone just thought I had a normal, happy, healthy life. Right. Absolutely fascinating that, that you know, <laughs> you're sort of, I don't know, navigating these rocks and, 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 and nobody's really sort of, paying any attention one of the bits that you you, you sent me uh, on twitter some bits you you you're telling me uh, about how the 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 crisis team uh told you about uh said to you if you carry on down this route of being a mental health careerist you say yeah. a little bit about that well, when I was in university, I basically went into the university counsellor and said, I need help, like someone needs to do something. Um, so they referred me to the crisis team who I was getting calls from this guy every day just to see how I was. Yeah. And he would say to me, look, Katie, if you carry on down this path as a mental health careerist, you won't be able to get a job. You won't be able to enter Australia or America because it will be declared on your passport. And all this shit, blah, blah, blah. I, don't, I really, at the time, I kind of believed him. But so that made me reluctant to get my diagnosis for bipolar because then I thought, well, if I get diagnosed with bipolar, that I won't be able to do all this stuff. I won't be able to have a family or you know, I'll lose custody of my kids and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, so I, I don't Ill, know what he was going to do. So being ill in his mind was, was a choice. Um, I think he was trying to put me off as if it was a choice, you know, to sort of fix my behavior. Because when you have a serious mental health problem and there's a lot of bad stuff going on in your life, you can act out and stuff yeah. and act act badly on purpose. That's the thing that happens. So I guess he thought that I was kind of acting out and needed to be disciplined. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, you sound far more relaxed about it. Than, than I think I feel. I, I, mean, I, I still feel a, a level of fury at that. But, but, but you, you, it sounds like you've gone, well, you know, it happened, life goes on sort of approach. 
it does happen and life does go on and you can't I mean if I was if I felt angry about everything I would just never stop feeling angry yeah I've got other stuff to do (laughs) well made yeah um the the uh, the other one, bit that that jumped out in your message um, was when you you've been to accident and emergency um, having self harmed. Mm-hmm. About that. Yeah, so I guess my self harm problem it sort of started when I was about twelve, and then it peaked. It got at its worst when I was in a violent relationship when I was sixteen. Yeah, and I went to A and E. A couple of times, not many times, but they would always... So I have one kind of scar that was quite difficult to treat. Right. Um, and they said to me that they weren't going to stitch it up. Uh, and it doesn't matter that it's going to leave a really big scar because I already have scars. And then what, the other time they did stitch up, they didn't use anesthetic because they... Um, just thought well you know you've done it to yourself you obviously don't mind pain so that's beyond bizarre isn't it I mean surely on the on medical courses on nursing courses they must do a little bit about mental health eh I think they probably do now but when I was a teenager it was definitely like you're either one of these crazy people who talks themselves on the bus (laughs) <laughs> or you're you're fine right and, and nothing like you're attention seeking so did you get that thrown at you yeah um I think people definitely like people in my school definitely thought that I was an attention seeker and um I think everybody did everyone everyone just thought that it was an attention-seeking thing and that my behaviour was attention-seeking because it was so erratic. Yeah. But really, I was behaving that way because I was extremely stressed. It sounds it. Um, I, I can't get my, my head into that, that position where you see people clearly distressed and you're just constantly just throwing the blame back at them. Mm. Yeah, I think looking back, my behaviour was actually pretty normal considering yeah. the situation I was in and the diagnosis that I have. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so, um, sorry, what? No, no, you, you go on. You were going to say something else. No, I was just going to say it's not uncommon for people with, with bipolar. Like I've had bipolar friends who, you know, they'll they'll go out the house naked or my therapist had bipolar and he wants walk naked into the cathedral and insisted that he was Jesus so ah, I mean yeah. that kind yeah. of stuff happens and yeah I, I know I've I've, I've worked this <laughs> for, for a while and, and the mind you know people stopping. think it's maybe attention seeking or yeah. they just can't understand why you would do it yeah so can you describe how you, you you've got a mental health problem in in mm-hmm. your your teenage years uh, which is which is bad enough. It's, it's difficult enough to deal with, but then you, you've you've got this sort of isolation thrown at you, where people are alienating you, sort of suggesting that you're, um, yeah, you're, you're you're bringing it on yourself. You're uh, attention seeking. So, how did that feel? Um, it just sort of made me think that 
other people are dicks and I need to keep away from them as much as possible. Right. And um, I just kind of shut myself away from everybody. I didn't really want to associate with anybody. And then I put a huge wall up um, in my late teens and early 20s where I just sort of pretend that I don't care about other people and I don't care about what they say about me. And that's what I told myself was true. Yeah, yeah. That's so hard. Yeah, I think it's quite a common thing to do. Yeah, oh yeah, I, I, I'd agree. So there were no close friends that people people you could confide in? There was, there was no, I, I guess, no safe space for you to go? No. Wow, that's, that's hard. So the, the next thing you, you mentioned to me was that you, you got into a relationship that was abusive. Do you, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I think I was probably a walking target for an abuser I think it just would have happened because I was clearly a vulnerable person I was clearly quite an isolated person which he sort of made worse yeah and um I think it was just bound to happen really how how old was he how old were you at the time I was about 15 when I met him and he was like 17 so by the time we broke up I was about 18 and he was about 21 Right, right. Um, it didn't seem like a, the age gap didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but now looking back, I think that's quite a big age gap for that for that age. And also, uh, yeah, you, you you speak about the the vulnerability. So, are, are you able to talk a little bit about the how it was abusive and and how that you, you how it just I, I don't know. It, it, I, can you just tell us a little bit about that that sort of situation? Yeah, let me just give my son a biscuit again. <laughs> He's um be a bit of brown. Here you go. Yeah, so I was kind of when at the point I met him, I was in a bad situation with my friends. They'd started to notice that my behaviour was quite bad. Right. And um I met him in a nightclub. Um and he was just really interested in me and what I had to say. And it just felt like he was the only person that actually cared about what was going on in my life. And I opened up to him and told him everything that was going on. And you know, he seemed really sympathetic and I guess made me a dependent person on on him. Um, and then, I don't know, his behavior sort of gradually got worse and worse. At first, you know, he would... He started by telling me that none of my friends really cared about me and stuff and I should get rid of them. Right, so and I then, you from other people. Yeah. Or he'd or he'd tell me things that they'd said about me, which may or may not have been true. I think they probably were untrue. Right. Um and then it just sort of got progressively more violent and just more abusive and horrible. Until eventually he dumped me because he said he didn't like the kind of person he was around me. Right. <laughs> so I think if he hadn't have broken up with me, I still would have been with him now because I was just such a fragile person. Um, you said more violent, so he, he was violent. He was physically violent. Yeah, he was physically violent. Like quite at one point, he actually um, almost killed me. Like he sort of lifted me up by my neck yeah and put his 
sort of, you know, was pressing down on my voice box so I couldn't breathe. Right. Um, and I had quite a bit of whiplash afterwards. But I just told everyone that uh, I told my parents I'd fallen over. I told my friends that um, I'd been in a fight. I told my doctors I'd been in a fight. Right. And I don't know why they believe me. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Well, it, I think it's those situations that people want to believe you because they don't, because the alternatives are, are too awful. And, and people, I'm, <clears throat> I'm guessing people didn't want to become involved. But yeah. That's that's gutting to hear. That is, it's it's horrible to hear. Um, well, so, after he broke up with me, I had a great time. Like I went, made loads of new friends. Yes, and just had the normal nineteen-year-old party life. Yeah, and yeah. I had I didn't get back into an abusive relationship after that. No, no. And you feel like you've you well, obviously you've learned from that, but. Um, it's I'm always again as a social worker I, I worked with a number of people who would find it difficult to leave a violent relationship yeah and you you sort of touched on that so what 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 was it about the relationship that you felt that you couldn't leave um I just felt like I was so dependent on him and my mental health was so bad he'd kind of convinced me that I would end up killing myself if I didn't have him around um wow. and I was really in love with him yes so yeah and love, when you've never yeah. really been in love with someone before and you, you're surrounded by messages telling you that there's only one person out there for you right right you think you're gonna just be unhappy forever after this person but leaves you if you lost him that'd be it forever gosh yeah but actually, I had the breakup wasn't really that bad. I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you remember the breakup? Yeah. And and the way you speak, it sounds like you you say, "Well, that that was a relief." Um, at the time, like I really did want to kill myself. It was so painful. Sure. When he broke up with me, um. But then I think that probably lasted a few months of grief over the end of the relationship and stuff and feeling sorry for myself. But at the same time, which could possibly why he broke up with me, I'd made a, a new group of friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they, I'd started spending more time with them than him. Right. Which I didn't really like. Um, and as, when he broke up with me, they were just like, you know, you're not crying about this. You're coming out with us. You know, go in the pool and stuff and meet new guys and we're going to have an amazing time. And we did. They sound like a good bunch. Yeah. Are, they, are they, these people you're still friends with now? Um, I've not really held on to any friends long term aside from the last kind of five years when I've been more stable. Okay. But I've been moving around and, you know, stuff like that. So we've not really fallen out, but we've kind of drifted apart of you at me. Just, just moved on. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I was going to ask... Uh, is uh, people often talk about self-harm um, and people say, you know, that people self-harm because they're attention-seeking and mm. that is so very, very, very rarely the case. Or even if, if they are self-harming to, to get attention, that's only part of what's going on. Can you yeah. tell me a bit about your self-harming and, and why 
uh, in your mind? What did it, what did it give it give you at the time? Well, I kept it completely secret from everybody um, until I was found out. Right. I was going to say that's um, a bit of attention seeking ever if you keep it yeah, secret. And then, I know. Yeah, that's amazing. So, sorry. Um, and I guess I would have a lot of pressure. There was a lot of chaos and conflict at home, but I wasn't really allowed to show any emotions at all. It was kind of a forbidden thing in my household was showing any kind of emotion or ungratitude or anything. Right. I mean, that's when you grow up with alcoholic parents, they they can't handle things like that. No. They're not in the frame of mind that they're there to parent you and guide you. They're in the frame of mind that you're in the way of their drinking. So you just kind of try and keep them, keep yourself out of the way as much as possible. So, and hide any emotions or problems. So, <clears throat> when you say any emotions, what you mean is negative emotions, you know. Any emotions. You you were allowed to laugh, were you, or or was that just difficult just, to... <clears throat> just just the mentality of the child that grows up in that environment is that you just need to be absent in a way, like you can be there but just not be there. So yes, I get that. I get that. It sounds horrible. So, you, I, I'm sorry I didn't ask you this earlier, but did you have any siblings? No. So you you were the lone child in this this environment, this toxic yeah. environment. So you must have felt incredibly isolated. Yeah, I did. That's hard. So going back to the self harm again, but when you first self harmed. How did that come about? Um, sorry, I've got a parrot. I know it's kind of annoying. <laughs> squeaking in the background. Really sorry. So um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my neighbour, she moved near to us when I was about eleven. Right. And she used to like bite massive chunks out of her arm. Right. Um, right. and she told me and our friends on the block like that that's how you can kind of make yourself feel better if you feel really angry and stuff. Wow. So I kind of just learned from here that that's what I could try. And it, it did kind of relieve things for me and took my mind off the situation that I was in and just gave me a bit of release because I was so angry and so um, just hurt and tense. It did help me and I still have impulses to do it and I right it's I don't do it anymore but I don't it's the coping mechanism I've grown up with because my parents didn't show me a healthy way to do it so now I just try and do different stuff like I eat something nice you know right so you you distract those thoughts then yeah I'm I'm not sure if I'm doing it right but I do try and just sort of kind of spoil myself if I feel bad and right right I suppose it is it's just learning about yourself isn't it yeah um so you eventually got the support you needed um well yeah when I got my diagnosis of bipolar that made things a lot easier because um people in A&E and GPs and everybody takes that very seriously. Right. 
So before they that, know you're, you're at high risk. So if they make a mistake and yeah. you go and do something, that could come back on them. Like they know that. Right. So you don't necessarily think it was down to empathy and compassion. It was about perhaps watching their own backs. Well, I think they just see you as a volatile, risky person who, because bipolar people aren't just at risk of suicide, they're at risk of, of all kinds of things in mania as well. Yeah, yeah. Get really hurt or, you know, one of my friends jumped off a building when she was manic. So they they really want to keep a close eye on you when you have bipolar. Yes, yes. So uh, did you go down a long course of therapy and that kind of thing and medication? Yeah, I've tried all the different medications and uh, they've given me uh, hearing voices therapy and um, that's it. I mean, they say that therapy doesn't really work for bipolar, so I've not really had much talking therapy or CBT, but I did have it for voice hearing. Right, right. Um it, that that sounds a little bit unusual because I think for a, a lot of mental health problems, the the talking therapy doesn't cure it, but it but it helps people come to terms with it. Um, whether that's you know coming to terms with the, what what they've got, or coming to terms with the, perhaps the loss of the person that they believed they were going to be. Yeah, the loss of the healthy self. Yeah, I didn't really have any of that, so that time of my when I was diagnosed and I realized that I wasn't going to get any better or I could get better but I was never going to get better then I felt awful just completely awful for ages yeah but I you know I still get sad about it sometimes but I try and frame it as like if I had a physical disability yes I mean I'd have to deal with the same things and there are people who have you know cystic fibrosis or diabetes or whatever who have to come to terms with that so why shouldn't I have something wrong with me really yeah yeah there's that so um are you on any medication just now then yeah I take um catiapine just a little bit of it I'd like to be medication free and I think I can probably achieve that with a very good routine because that's really helped with my bipolar is routine it's called the uh, interpersonal and social rhythm therapy. Right, right. Can you say a little bit more more about that? Um, it's basically like so. If you have bipolar, you have a kind of messed up circadian rhythm, right? Which causes the dips in energy and the main manic cycles. Um, so if you have a very careful routine of waking up at the same day, going to sleep at the same time, eating at the same time, um, and also have stability in the roles you have with other people, you can achieve stability. That, that's a, that sounds like a lot of work when, when your mind is is racing. Perhaps. So where were we? I, I, I lost my place. <laughs> I was talking about interpersonal and social rhythm therapy and how it's probably not best if you're in a crisis and you have a really unstable life. But Uh, my life is quite stable at the moment, so it's possible to implement a routine and things like that. All right. right. Um, That's something I I tell people quite often is, uh, you know, never try to, um, I don't know, 
plan for a crisis while you're in the crisis because yeah it's almost impossible isn't it yeah but like if yeah. you have bipolar your yeah. manic episodes can be triggered to any change in your routine so yeah. something that's positive like going on holiday or getting a new boyfriend can be a trigger of so you need to kind of try and stick with the routine even if you're doing those things yeah yeah um so for for uh, some time did you find getting to sleep at the right time was that difficult and and you you speak about it uh so wonderfully matter-of-factly um how did you do it you know how how did you overcome i guess insomnia and getting up at the wrong time but what did it feel like you were sort of um no no you tell me i struggle with keeping to my routine it's really difficult when it when it's going badly i try not to beat myself up about it right and when it's going well it makes me feel so good that I've actually become a really boring person for anyone around me. Like I have to do the same things at the same time every day. Yeah. I don't like going out and partying and staying up late and stuff because I feel so good when yeah. I'm doing the same things that I like to do. It's kind of become second nature. Sure, sure. Because if I have to do something that's outside of my routine, it makes me feel poorly. So mm. I don't like to do it. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and and you know what's best for you, so I think I think that sounds like absolutely a great way you to be dealing with it. So, um, can you sort of describe your world now? Then um, you know where are you at and what what are you up to and who, who's in your world that kind of thing. Well, I have a happy marriage. Yeah. I um, have a toddler who's been distracting me in the school. Who um, is about two. I got a lot of support from the perinatal mental health team when I had him, but everything was fine. Um, and I'm self-employed, so I work from home. Everything's really good. Got a lot of friends. Yeah, sounds amazing. From from you know the the turnaround from what you experienced when you were younger. Yeah. To 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 this, it it sounds. Absolute chalk and cheese. So you're still in touch with your parents? Yeah, me and my mum are going to Al-Anon together now to kind of work through. And she's, she's stopped drinking, but my dad hasn't. So we're going to Al-Anon together to work through the... the, the that's, that's a whole new big thing in my life at the moment. But I feel like this is the last thing that I've got to deal with and then I'll be fine. Right. How did you get to that point? I mean... I'm guessing there might have been anger or upset attached to all that had gone on. Was that, you know, taking the step to be actually working therapeutically with your mum? Was that, was that a big step? Um, I kind of given up on caring about what he does, but I was uh, on the adult children of alcoholics on Reddit. And that kind of educated me a lot about the characteristics that adult children have, which, right. you know, it's, it's not really a mental health problem. It's more like personality flaws that we have yeah. Yeah. that we can just work on with this program. And I asked my mum if she wanted to go on it with me, and she said, yeah. Brilliant. That sounds just, uh, yeah, like I say, it just sounds like a, a great uh, 
change. So on, on that on that very topic, you, you you're talking about Reddit. Um, so would you say that social media has been a, a force for good, a force for bad, or somewhere in between for you? It's been a force for good because I can meet, I can speak to a lot of other people with bipolar. So one person saying, "Oh, does anybody get you know like." We get earworms, we get songs stuck in our head really easily and we can even hear them out loud. And that's something that you don't really get to talk to normal people about because they're just like, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. I get some stuck in my head, but I'm like, it's not like this. But people on the bipolar edit just totally get it. Right, brilliant. But on the downside, there's not many people with bipolar and schizophrenia as people with anxiety and depression. So... In general, most of the conversation seems to be about anxiety and depression, and it's not really relevant to anything that's what I identify with, I guess. So I guess you can feel a bit on the periphery of those conversations. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, it sounds... I mean, I, I've found that the whole um, social media thing incredibly positive and mm-hmm. you know, the the worst thing that can happen to me is I, I i feel the urge to block and report somebody uh but that's that's been absolutely rare have you have you found the the need to block and report people have you received any sort of difficult things on online oh yeah but not not really to do with mental health right I mean, I used to engage in arguments on Twitter and stuff, but I just don't anymore. Yes, you can. There, there lies infinity. Yeah, exactly. You could, it just eats up so much of your time. It's, I don't think it's very productive for me to have an argument with someone who lives in America about something that doesn't even affect me, you know? Yes, yes, but it's very easy. You to can get caught yeah. up in that on Twitter, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, an easy thing to fall into. It is an easy thing to fall into. If you were to to look back at your your younger self, what what advice do you think you'd give? Um, I would point myself towards understanding how to properly care for myself, like the routine and the good eating habits and the vitamin deficiencies and stuff that we're Interesting. prone to, the gut problems that we have, you know, fixing your bipolar people have different gut health than other people. Like, I would tell myself about all of that because that information and education has been more helpful to me than anybody else has. That's like, I've helped myself. It's I'm not anybody else's credit not, that I'm married and happy now. I've not heard of the gut health thing. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, you should. I, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact uh, citations and stuff, but you yeah. know, you, I've been learning about how your gut has a really big impact on your mental health. Right. And right. people with bipolar have a deficiency in a certain type of bacteria in their gut, and this could be because we have wacky eating habits. Right. And it could right. be because of our medication. They don't really know why, but we do have it, and your gut can influence your mood. So. That's interesting. Thanks for that. I know I really appreciate that because I think we, we, we very often don't think about that link. And I, I remember reading just something quite recently that, that, that there is as much sort of DNA lurking around in our stomachs as there is elsewhere in the, uh, in the rest of the body, in, in our brains. Yeah. And it, it's like it, it's something we ignore at our peril. 
So that's... It's a whole body problem, I think. Like this, talk about mental health, but it's not really just your brain. It's sort of everything. Like you, bipolar people have a problem with their circadian rhythm, but your yeah. circadian rhythm isn't just in your brain. It's in your skin and it's in your tummy and it's in your, you know, everything. Right, right. That's, that's, that, yeah, again, that's really interesting to, to hear because, you know, we, we can get so tied up in just thinking about what's going on in the, in the brain that we, we ignore, like you say, your circadian rhythms in, in the rest of your body. And, and, and on the other complete opposite side, the, the person's social life and what, what's going on for them at home and, and the world. So it's, you need, what you're saying is we really need to be looking at it in an incredibly holistic way before we can get yeah. any understanding. I think it's totally, um, you're able to self-treat so much with bipolar. There's so much that you can do for yourself that isn't really true of other mental illnesses. And we could, we're able to really help ourselves. And that's the good thing about bipolar is that it is really treatable. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, 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 you mentioned that you were happily married. You, and that's, yeah, I'm absolutely delighted to hear that. Uh, you know, I've got a, a long-term mental health problem and I'm happily married. And that feels contrary to what we're often told, that, that yeah. you know, we, we, we'll, we'll, we'll never be loved. Um, yeah. What, was that a, an, an easy world to enter into where, you, you know, when you met your your now husband, or, you know, did, I mean, going from a, a, a you know, difficult mindset about yourself, how, how did that feel going into something that was obviously very positive? Well, I've had other positive relationships with men. Yeah, um, that you know just ended for because we weren't in the right time frame right. or whatever. Um, but he kind of comes from a similar background to me, so I think he's more understanding. He just he gets stuff more. Right. Whereas I've had relationships in the past where someone's kind of become a codependent with me because they feel like they need to sort of save me or right. help me, which I don't really need. No, no, it certainly doesn't sound like it. Is sounds like you you're. I know you're very thoughtful about well. I've got the I've got the the this these problems. How do I go about resolving them? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's really healthy for someone to be a kind of nursemaid in a relationship. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's an easy roles to slip into, though, isn't it? It is, yeah, but it's not really good for either parties. I don't think. So, um, what about the future for you? Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of trying to get through every day as it comes. Yeah. I just, I don't really have any long-term plans. I just try and deal with each day as it comes. And some days are bad days and some days are good days. So, well, again, from what you're saying there, and, th and this is something that, that I, I think you're, you're not taking for granted, but it's something you've obviously worked at is, is acceptance of yourself. Yeah. Because um, people very often, I mean, and, and I include myself in this, is, you know, I'd spend hours just thinking, why can't I just be normal? Um, yeah. 
Is is that something you've kind of jettisoned? Yeah, I have those thoughts as well. Right. But the thing I think has been good for me about this whole journey is that I feel very self-empowered to change myself. Right, right. So, well, say if you felt you were spending too much time on your phone or you're eating too much sugar, yeah, it might be really difficult to, you might feel kind of disempowered about it, I don't know, but I just feel like anything I put my mind to doing, I just do it. Yeah, and yeah. if I need to change something about myself, I just do it. I don't have this, you know. I mean, some people don't want to look at themselves in that way and they don't want to change because they're afraid of criticizing themselves. But I'm so used to being told, you know, you have this or that wrong with you, you need to be doing this or that, that I found it very easy to change myself, run a successful business, right, right. have a marriage. Because if there's something missing in my life, I just go and get it. Right. Okay. That sounds great. No, that, that's a, a, and a, a, you know, it, it also it doesn't sound, you know, what you're saying. It, it doesn't sound evangelical. It sounds like it's it's very practical advice. It's uh, like you know, why why wouldn't you look at your situation like that? Why wouldn't you challenge yourself like that? Well, I think. The problem I see a lot with viability people when they first start out is they do not educate themselves enough about that because it's pretty much a physical health problem. Yeah. Like they'll say things like, oh, I've been up for three nights. Does anyone have any tips to go to sleep? And I'm like, if you've been up for three nights, you need to go to a GP and get an emergency appointment now. Yeah. Like you shouldn't yeah. be in that situation. But they just they're like, they almost think it's normal, you know? So I'm um, so... In, in that situation, you go to the GP. What, what what can the GP do for you when you've been awake for three nights? If you're in that situation, you need to just sleep in whatever way possible. So right. usually, if if I start to go up like that, my GP will pre- prescribe me either Zopiclone or Diazepam. Right. And then you should go to bed. For, even if you can't sleep, just go to bed and stay in bed in a dark room. And go, go through. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming with no... Um, Nothing else going on, no TV, no screen-based activities, no books, just a darkened room. Is that, is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, because, you know, they say for normal people, and, and bipolar people end up following the advice for normal people. So if you're a normal person and you can't sleep, they say, oh, we'll get up and do something else and then go back to sleep when you feel tired. But if yeah. you're bipolar, you're not going to feel tired. And yeah. the more you do, the less tired you're going to feel. So... You need to go to bed, relax. Right, right. <clears throat> very simple, uh, straightforward, but, but uh, very simple advice. But but I suppose it's uh, you know it, it, the, the proofs in the pudding. Really, it's actually it's easier said than done. Absolutely. I compare it to gremlins when he gets the mogwai, ah, and they say, "Oh, just don't feed him after midnight. Don't get him wet, and don't expose him to sunlight." That sounds easy. That is a lovely way of describing it. I think. That's what it's like being bipolar. Go to bed on time, eat at regular times, take your medication. Right. Easy. Yeah. So <laughs> um, is there anything I haven't asked you? Is there anything that you'd like the world to know about your life with a mental health problem with bipolar? Mm, just that it can get, things can get better and people should educate themselves about as much as possible about what they have. 
then things can always improve. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm going to say thanks very much for being uh, on the podcast and uh, speaking so openly and frankly and, and uh, actually throwing some advice out there as well. I think, I think it will be incredibly useful for a lot of folk. Well, you're welcome. Thanks okay. for having me. Okay, brilliant. Thanks a lot, Katie. Okay, bye. Well, that's it from Walker Mile just now. A huge thank you to Katie. I think I'll keep throwing out the question, what happens when someone develops a mental health problem for a while? There's still a lot of conversation to be had there. Next time, I'll be speaking with Holly, who, after years of navigating the mental health system, was recently given the label of borderline personality disorder. We discuss what that means to her and her plans for the future. Remember, you can contact me on 07535035909 or email me at hello at letswalkamile.org or follow me on Twitter at walkamileuk. And if you have the anchor.fm app, you can leave audio messages that I can play in the next episode. Until the next time, I've been Chris Young and you've been rather fabulous. Walk a mile. <laughs>